It's the story of an American held in a dark Venezuelan prison. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me. And this is the point where I thought, I'm going to die today. I'm Becky Bruce. I spent a year working on Hope in Darkness, which now has more than 2 million downloads. Find it on kslpodcast.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. I guess it was when I saw that hack of the colonial pipeline in Texas, I thought, could that happen here and disrupt our sources of energy? And I want to talk about all our sources of energy, but first off, could that disrupt our source, our access to gas first off, Chris? Um, You know, I don't think that that pipeline's um, temporary shutdown is going to do much to our market. We have a pretty isolated gas market. Of course, there could be ripple effects, right? I mean, a lot of the um, airports and things in the southeast depend upon that uh, that pipeline for their own supplies. And so if they start running short, you know, you can obviously see ripple effects through uh, through the the airline systems and things like that. But as far as the actual gas market here, we're pretty well isolated from that and should be hopefully in price as well as actual physical supply. Where do we get most of our gas from? Um, A variety of places. You know, of course, we've got refineries around here. But so we have a pretty closed market. And you might recall, like, periodically, it seems like every 10 or 15 years, someone files a complaint asking about gasoline price gouging. And in fact, there was an attorney general study, I want to say back in like 2005, 2006, somewhere in that time frame, that kind of evaluated our market and said, look, no, these are just market fluctuations. And we're sort of a little bit walled off from the national markets in a way that gives us a lag in price. And some people will say, well, it seems to only give us a lag in prices coming down, not going up. And, and you know, there's certainly some debate that can be had about that. But our market is pretty, pretty isolated from that, that specific pipeline. And that, and that pipeline's coming back online. Uh, you know, the federal pipeline folks and Department of Transportation, where that's located, they've waived some different rules to kind of help get gas trucked instead of just through that pipeline, but also to get that pipeline turned back on. Colonial has started some patrols and things to make sure that it's safe to turn back on throughout its whole length. And they're doing that sort of in stages, is my understanding. Do you know, Chris, uh, whether or not the refineries and the, the places that where we get gas in this closed market have the kinds of cyber protections in place that might prevent the kind of hack that happened to Colonial? You know, we don't directly regulate them, so I don't know specifics about their cybersecurity. I would expect that they have pretty robust cybersecurity operations. I mean, they're generally pretty sizable and sophisticated operators, and, and you know, they know the criticality of those systems. I, I can't speak about, you know, like Dominion Energy and Rocky Mountain Power. We get annual briefings from them about their cybersecurity processes and plans and have been for about a decade. I think that started shortly after I started at DPU, and they have really robust systems to, to guard both their data security as well as physical security. Um, there's a lot of different components and they they tend to create like layered defenses, right? So the network that they have internally, only some of it is connected to internet-based systems, right? 
And so there are different levels of security. And as you get closer to those core functions, you know, they have added things. So for instance, they've got, a, they, they spend a lot at both of those companies and I suspect everywhere on identity security, right? Credentials. So they know who's logged in is who they say they are. And, and that helps them protect their data as well as their systems. Uh, both of those companies as well have their control systems walled off from other network systems. So if you're in the control room for uh, a major electrical utility that you, you're not, you know, checking your email and paying your bills on the same computer that you're controlling the equipment on, right? So they do that. They all employ a pretty sophisticated internal audit procedures on these. And I don't mean financial audits, but they'll test their systems out and have exercises uh, periodically internally to see what might be compromised, what you would do in the event of a compromise. And, you know, my understanding of this colonial incident is that some of the actual physical shutdown of the pipeline was preventative. It wasn't that the hackers shut the pipeline down itself. It's that they saw the hackers in the system. And so they affirmatively went, the company did, and shut the pipeline down to avoid problems and loss of control over it. As you're describing it then, the kinds of hacks that companies like Dominion and Questar and Rocky Mountain are prepared to prevent and protect us from, these are the kinds of hacks that would protect not only an interruption of service, but the leak of, of personal data. Yeah, correct. So like, I'll give you an example. And, you know, obviously these companies don't want to talk very specifically about their systems. And I'm glad right? they don't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They don't need to give a, a manual to the hackers. But so, you know, you're always concerned about data theft. You're concerned about ransomware, which is what this one on Colonial was. It's, hey, we've got control of your systems. You pay us enough, we'll get out. Which, you know, it's great work if you can get it, I guess, right? In fact, I read somewhere, oddly enough, that this group that did this hack, they have a help desk to enable people to pay the ransom more easily. I, I read, too, that they said, we didn't mean to cause trouble. We just want to make money. So they have yeah. an ethics department. I, mean, yeah. I know. It's ridiculous. Um, so then, you know, there's like denial of service attacks. And then, of course, you have the broader concern about terrorism, not just economic loss, but if terrorists want to get in and disrupt a network. And you see here with Colonial that, you know, a, a disruption of this pipeline actually has a ripple effect and you stop getting enough gas and goods stop moving and services stop. And it actually does have a very disruptive effect and indeed can lead, lead to loss of life in, in lots of instances. So, you know, hackers are short-sighted, but these companies are working hard. And so one of the things that, that some of the utilities have done that I think is actually really insightful, the vast majority of these attacks get in through phishing attempts, right? And I, I think you're probably familiar with those where you get an email that's sort of like, hey, there's been a problem on your account and you need to update your password. Click here to update your password. And then you click here. It looks like the website you think it is, but it's not. So these companies have employed internal fake phishing attempts to identify the vulnerabilities in their company. So they'll say, okay, we, we sent this to 10,000 of our employees and 500 of them went for it. They fell for it. So we're going to have education of everyone, but we're going to go to those 500 employees and say, hey, guys, take this special class. And if you fall for this again, you might get disciplined. 
So they have these sophisticated systems that are not just fortifying the networks themselves, but changing the human behavior that is often the main vulnerability. Yes. I'm less worried about, you know, the large utilities like Dominion and Pacificorp. Obviously, the damage that can be done with those utilities is is much greater, but I think the likelihood is much smaller that it will happen because they have very robust programs in place. I'll never say never. It can always happen. But I, I worry more about some of the smaller operations using like old SCADA technology that maybe hasn't been kept up. And, you know, we have a lot of smaller utilities around the country. We have some in Utah that are, you know, sometimes run by less sophisticated parties. It could be a water company that, you know, serves one or two small subdivisions and is sort of run by the folks who live there. And, you know, they're just not sophisticated parties on these sorts of things. Now, in many cases, they also don't have very sophisticated equipment. So the worry is diminished somewhat. But and frankly, the sort of hacker bang for the buck is also diminished. So I think we're lucky in that regard. But those are the utilities that worry me a lot more, the ones that aren't actively out there engaging professionals and constantly monitoring these issues. You know, that that leads to a question that I had, Chris, which is, do these companies, these entities get to decide themselves how much security is enough security? Or do you as a regulator get to impose some sort of standard on them? Yeah, so we could, I, I think the Public Service Commission could certainly impose a standard on them if it felt like it needed to. It, it has a broad public interest uh, responsibility to discharge that it could do that. It's it's discharged that responsibility in this instance by requiring these briefings and, and kind of keeping up to speed. And from my perspective, I can't speak for the commission, but I've I've not found anything lacking in their approaches. These you know, our, our major utilities in particular, they're participating in their own industry trade groups and, and they have a very strong internal interest in protecting this stuff. Their operation, I think, is far more sophisticated and nimble than something that we could put into administrative rule, right? This is such an ever-changing area that to try to codify some standard uh, would be really challenging, I think. And it'd be changing all the time. I hear that. All the time. So we monitor and hope that that's enough. And and I I think it usually is. I mean, you know, there's always a chance bad stuff can happen. I'll put it that way. Are renewable forms of energy like like wind and solar, are those as hackable as traditional forms of energy? Or is that a dumb question? No, I don't think it's a dumb question. No, anything that is network connected, right? Anything that you can control remotely, I think, has vulnerability. And that's almost our entire network. Even smaller facilities, say like a a large industrial customer that has its own generation facility that it uses and sells into the market, even those are controlled from a control room that's network connected. And anytime you're network connected, you're vulnerable. Is there anything that I should be asking you that I haven't asked you about our preparedness and our our strengths here? Because I know people are nervous after they saw what happened down there. Yeah. The challenge, of course, is, you know, you can spend as much money as you want to on this stuff and still have vulnerabilities because it's ever changing. There was I listened to a podcast and read a little bit about the old Stuxnet virus. And when you have state level actors who are engaged in this sort of stuff, 
in this case, you know, at least my personal point of view is this was the bad guys sending it to the good guys. Like that makes me feel better. But, you know, it's no secret that, you know, the Chinese government and the Russian government have hacking operations. And, you know, to the extent that um, they want to, they're going to they're going to keep engaging in these activities. And, you know, the, the only thing the companies and others can really do is just be constantly vigilant. Right. And and have nimble and engaged programs to help guard against these vulnerabilities. And I know there are companies like Symantec and those, they don't just have consumer level products, they have much larger level products as well. And they sell their services to, you know, cybersecurity firms. And those cybersecurity firms try to stay on top of what's what Symantec and those other companies are seeing every day. So they see new forms of viruses coming in. They try to get the word out. They try to patch their programs and send those things out. And I think that's all operators can do is stay as current as possible. And carry cyber insurance. Is that something that public utilities carry is cyber insurance like universities and hospitals and other groups do or not? You know, I don't actually know. I assume they do. Yeah. Um, I haven't asked that question specifically, but I assume they do. I I mean, you know, Rocky Mountain Power is an affiliate of Berkshire Hathaway, ultimately, and they have a lot of insurance businesses. So I'm <laughs> yeah. sure they've got an insurance product for that. <laughs> well, Chris, I appreciate your time today. Truly, I do. It's always good to talk to you. Thank you so much. You bet. It's good to see you. Take care. You, you take care of yourself. Okay. Bye. Bye. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear-gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor, Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.